Grammar and context are so important in communication. You guys hear me say this all the time, and I will never stop beating this drum. Let me give you some examples. Perhaps you've seen these online. I like cooking, my family, and my friends. Notice the commas. But if you remove those commas, what do you have? I like cooking my family and my friends. Very different messages, are they not? Yeah, you guys there? Are they very different messages? Yeah, they are. I love this that I found online. This is where I got it from. I like cooking my family and my friends. And then it says, it's hard to see in the red there, use commas, don't look like a psycho. Right? Here's another one that I found that without the punctuation, just as it is, it's very hard to figure out what they're saying. Um, attention, toilet only for disabled elderly pregnant children. And then I love, thank you for shopping with us all, right? They've got, the, they've got the exclamation points there. Thank you for shopping with us. We have totally lost the idea of how to use grammar and punctuation in our society. But it's extremely, extremely important. Now, this is grammar. Context is also important. Even with the earlier mistake, if we threw a sentence in front of it, it would add enough context for us to still be wrong, but for us to kind of figure out what it's saying. I find joy in many different things. I like cooking my family and my friends. Still wrong, but it would help us kind of sort of understand what the person is trying to say. So these are important things for us to understand, grammar and context. They're important in all texts, but perhaps none as important, complex, or weighty a topic as the one before us today. The text before us today delves into the very divisive topic within the church and without, especially in our current culture, of gender roles and specifically those within marriage. I jokingly thought to myself I should get a t-shirt made that has big red circles moving in a target so that people had a, something to throw at um, as, we, as I studied through the topic today. If we look at just the first part of our topic today, removing it from context, removing it from grammar, you can see why it's a divisive topic. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Anyone get nervous about this verse? Raise your hand if you get a little nervous about it. Uh-huh. Ladies, it's okay. You can raise your hands. Ladies, you get nervous about this verse? Raise your hands. Okay, three of you are honest. The rest of you, you're submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord. <laughs> but we will figure out what that actually means. Because, guys, this verse, as amazing and right and true as it is, is full of horrible possibilities. Horrible possibilities. Now this time, let's read it in context. And to help you, I'm also going to show you something that is found in the Greek text. Because remember, our English is not the original language. And remember that the Greek manuscripts originally had no punctuation and no spaces between words. You think that's hard? Try making a puzzle out of words for your kids and see what they pick out. And so I'm going to show you the Greek New Testament in what's called the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament and the impression that these scholars who, uh, who put this down, what they had from the Greek, okay? This is what it looks like in the Greek. Now, I want to do a simple exercise here. Everybody look up at the screen and see the number in red there. This is the section about wives. What verse does it start with? What's the number on the screen there? Everybody look and see what verse the section on wives starts with in your English translation and yell it out when you get it. Wait a minute, we got a problem. Now, look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
That's actually what this section starts with. This is very, very important. Grammar is important. To help you understand what I believe Paul was trying to get across, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play with this wooden Greek translation a bit to help you understand Paul's point. Because if you remember last week, we talked about being filled with the Spirit. And the verb was be filled with the Spirit. That was the command to every man, every woman in the church. And then from that, there were participles or characteristics of what a Spirit-filled church was. The last of which was which one? Submitting one to another. A church filled by the Spirit, all the people in it submit one to another. Okay? And so, if I play with the wooden translation a bit, this is what the point is. Church, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. In the original Greek text, the word submit there in verse 22 does not exist. It's actually pulled from 21. Let me say that again. In the original Greek text, the word submit there in verse 22 is not there. It is pulled from 21. It gets its connotations from 21. Okay? So do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, as an example, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This has entirely different connotations, does it not, than this. This requires blind obedience regardless of whether or not your husband follows the Lord or not. This right here shows a body full of differing roles serving in diversity to build up the unity of the body. Totally different contexts. Totally different grammar. What we see here is so important. Paul is moving into what is commonly called the household code, dealing with various types of relationships within the church. He's trying to get across to us the simple fact that our relationships within the church, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as bosses and employees, they're like Russian nesting dolls that all sit inside the ultimate relationship of Christ and his church and our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're all within those. And so the first point we see today is this. All relationships within the church are to reflect our relationships with Christ. Write that down. All relationships within the church are to reflect our relationship with Christ. We spent a great deal of time discussing this at length throughout Ephesians. But just to remind us, I want to help, help you remember a little bit here. Remember that just as Israel was to reflect God in the midst of their relationships and lifestyle of righteousness and justice... Now, God's people, the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, are to rightly reflect his character as well. Guys, this is the Lord's plan of evangelism. It always has been. It always will be. Chapter 2 and 4 of Ephesians spoke of taking us captive from the kingdom of darkness and making us citizens in the kingdom of light. And as we operate within that kingdom, under the rule of our one king, our one Lord, who is loving and anointed, Jesus, what happens is we begin to reflect God's heart to the world and we become a temple to the Lord. You guys remember Ephesians 2, 19 through 20? Look there really quick. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. We, we use this often, almost every Sunday, because it is so important in the midst of Ephesians. 
It says, so then you, Gentile church in Ephesus, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church here is compared to what? What does it say? We are a holy what? Temple. And this word temple is very important for us to understand. A temple was the place where the abode of man and the abode of God met. The abode of God and the abode of man meant. And so if somebody wanted to go experience the abode of God, they would go in the abode of man to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and they would experience to a distance the abode of God. The Garden of Eden was the temple. It was where God dwelt with man. It was where mankind experienced God. When Jesus showed up on the earth, John 1 says that he came and dwelt. The word in the Greek is he tabernacled. He tented among us. He was the temple. And so if you wanted to know who Yahweh was, who would you go hang out with? Jesus. Yeah, you'd go hang out with Jesus. I want to know who Yahweh is. Let me go see Jesus. For some reason in the Western church, what we've done is we've said, yeah, go hang out with Jesus. Well, guys, can anyone in the world right now in this moment go physically, tangibly hang out with Jesus? It's not a trick question. The answer is no, they cannot. By the Spirit, they can experience him. But if they physically, tangibly want to experience who Yahweh is, who does Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 say they need to go hang out with? The church. Us. That's pretty weighty, isn't it? The people in relationships that make up the body of Christ, the church, are to be that touch point between the abode of God and the abode of man where those in creation that do not know the Father God can look to and dwell among to witness and experience God's heart and image. I can't even imagine what God feels and thinks every time he hears a pastor say, the church is full of hypocrites, it's no big deal, come join us. The entire point of the Bible is don't be a hypocrite. Follow Christ in his example so that the world knows who Yahweh is. Through the apostles going out as missionaries and sending more missionaries, churches were then established. You never sent a missionary without the purpose of establishing a church. And they were established to give the locals in that area God's understanding, God's heart. They'd build those relationships in that church to display the image of God's heart. And one of the ways they do that is within the sub-relationship of marriage. Look at Ephesians 5.32. Speaking of how a husband and a wife are joined together in marriage, 532, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage has no point if it is not to reflect in zeal Christ and his church. That's why when people come to me and ask, you know, shouldn't everybody have the right to marry? I would say, why would non-believers want the right to marry? What they're asking for is not a tax break or sex or living with their best friend. Go do that anyway. Everybody else does. What they're asking for is we want to reflect Jesus and his church. But they don't know that's what they're asking for. Because that's the whole point of marriage, guys. It seems to me then that all relationships are to be reordered for the Christian based on this mission of displaying God's heart to the world. And this, I believe, is why Christ spoke such amazingly difficult words 
to his disciples about reordering relationships and clearly drawing lines of demarcation around who is and who is not someone to look to for an understanding of who God is and what his heart is. Christ was very clear. You have to understand who it is. And so uh, look with me here at Luke 8 up on the screen. You guys know this story. Jesus' mother and brothers showed up. He was healing, and they said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Notice what Jesus answers them. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Not and believe, not and say a prayer. Who's a true Christian according to Jesus? Silence. Who's a true Christian according to Jesus? Those who do the word, those who obey his word. Jesus was very clear. Don't just randomly call everybody a Christian. This is one of my big rallying cries lately. Oh, so-and-so, they're a wonderful believer. How do you know? I think they go to church. Well, they talk about Jesus in the same voice as the NRA and the Republicans, in the same voice as the Democrats. Is their religion a nationalistic religion, or is it following Jesus Christ and obeying him? How do you know if someone is a true believer? Don't say they're a believer until they show you they're a believer. That's according to Jesus, not me. And so without understanding this, we don't reorder our lives. We don't reorder our relationships. But Paul said in Ephesians 5, do not partner with those who do the work of darkness. Partner with Christ. Hans, does that mean we should never be around non-believers? Absolutely not. But understand the mission They are not who you partner with. You partner with Christ and his church to reach them so that they might be drawn into the kingdom of light. And so without understanding this, to use this section of 522, without understanding this reordering of roles and the fact that all of them build up to this idea of Christ and his church, if we use it out of grammatical and surrounding context, we greatly pervert its meaning. Let me pause for a moment and acknowledge that this has been the case in much of the church for a long time. The topic of gender roles and rights within the church has an ugly history. This morning, I want to recognize a couple of concerns and promise one thing before we unpack this text further. First, I want to recognize that we are dealing with a text that is addressed to women and their role as wives. And you have me talking about it. For me, a man, to be addressing you, the women of this church, is like having a fish ride a bicycle. At worst, it is unnatural. At best, it is odd. And I get that. And so, ladies, I thank you for your grace. At the end of my teaching, we're going to have a panel of women from our leadership team, as well as my wife, come up to have a healthy conversation with me about everything I'm going to talk about. And so if they have any problem with what I'm saying, that's the first question I'm going to ask. Is there anything that you would like to speak to? And they will have a chance to do that. As I preach today, I don't want to close the discussion, but rather open it up and air it out for us to lovingly dialogue about it. Secondly, I want to proactively communicate to all of you, that over the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing marriage, but we're also going to be talking about unmarried, what it is to be unmarried. And so we're going to have today talking about the wives, next week talking about husbands, and then the third week talking about what it is to be an unmarried person when talking about marriage. And so there will be truth for everyone. So don't feel like this is a sermon series just on marriage and how to have a better marriage. Third, I want to recognize that the topic of gender roles in marriage in the church 
And specifically, some of the verbiage around this topic, such as submission, headship, authority, and many other terms, are automatically cloaked in a background of oppression and abuse and hierarchy and chauvinism. That's just the reality of things. And for that, I am deeply saddened, and I lament over any part I've had in my entire life, especially within this church, to add to that if I have. My goal today and my promise to all of you is that I'm going to do my best to to do justice to this text and in so doing challenge all of us in this room, not just the women, while also staying true to God's heart that was sacrificially and lovingly shown to us on the cross of Calvary. So what I ask of all of you is that you come with open hearts and minds and that you do your best to listen to the truthful word of God and lay aside any presuppositions. Church, you have to recognize that individually when we bristle at something, Often it comes from background baggage. And so we need to put that aside as we listen to what the Word of God says. It comes from broken situations and people rather than from the truth of the Word. So now having said all of that and given all my caveats, let's continue unpacking this text by reading it in the full in Ephesians 5, and I want to start in verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. First thing we've got to understand, I've already unpacked it a bit, is this. Write this down. This is the second main point of the teaching. To properly represent Christ, relationships within the church must show both love and order. Guys, love without truth is sentimentality and nothing more. Truth without love is harsh, even abusive. That's been around the church for a long time. Tim Keller made it popular more recently. The same, though, can be said, in my opinion, of order and love. And what we have to realize is that God is first and foremost love. And so let's look at this verse in Ephesians 5.22 from what it is not saying according to love. Here are some wrong interpretations that I want all of us to understand about Ephesians 5 because I've heard them repeatedly throughout my time in the church. The first thing that it is not saying, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, is not saying that husbands have authority to mistreat their wives. It is not saying that. And just in case anybody wants to clip my uh, wording online, it is not saying that, okay? So hopefully there's enough context of not. God's character is holy, which means he is also just. Above all, God hates seeing the oppression of his people, of his creation. And too often we hear people utilize Bible passages wrongly to oppress one another. How does God feel about this? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi 2.13. Go to Malachi 2.13. Right at the end there of the Old Testament. Malachi 2.13. And we're going to go through verse 16. This whole book is what's called disputations. 
There's a dispute between the people of Israel and God, primarily the leaders, and they're arguing back and forth with God. Is that a good idea, by the way, to ever argue with God? Not really. Verse 13 says, And this second thing you do, God is saying to the people of Israel, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Guys, that has incredible uh, connotations. That means that a person who doesn't get married under the authority of God and his church are not made one. That's what that says. And he did this with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. See, the whole point was to fulfill that promise of be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In the name of who? In the name of Yahweh. So guard yourselves in your spirit, he says, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now this gets misused, and I could spend an entire hour on this. This gets misused by abusive spouses who say, they can't divorce me. The Bible says God hates divorce. Well, actually it doesn't. That's a mistranslation of of, uh, the King James Bible. God actually divorces Israel at one point, just FYI. So divorce is a terrible thing, but the reason God gave a loophole for divorce is in the cases of abuse. That's when divorce is okay. Now, hear me clearly. I am not a pastor standing up here going, okay, divorce whenever you want. Make up ideas about why your spouse is abusive and then divorce. That's not what I'm saying. But let's read the text and obey the text. What the text says is that God called out Israel and Judah as being faithless. And the people responded to God, how have we been faithless? Well, what they'd been doing was they decided to divorce their wives who they covenanted with and promised to protect and love in order to go couple up with a younger woman and in many cases, pagans. But God had them marry so they could show the world covenant faithfulness and produce children who followed Yahweh and spread his glory in the earth. But they'd forsaken that mission for their own good, their own self-fulfillment and selfishness. And in doing so, they oppressed and harmed their wives. And so God's response is there in verse 16. You're covering your garment in violence. What that means is God is going to destroy you. A spouse who harms their spouse, God will destroy because you're oppressing them. So God's response is not fun. If a husband or a wife mistreat their spouse, and I've seen it in both, but primarily I've seen it with men mistreating their wives using biblical tenets, to say, you got to just blindly obey me, God is going to require from you your life. So better that he requires now your humble repentance from mistreating your spouse. So it's definitely not saying that husbands have the authority to mistreat their wives. We good on that one? All right. It's getting more and more quiet the longer I go on here. (laughs) Likewise, wives, it's also saying you can't mistreat your husbands. But we'll get to that next week. Second, it is also not saying that every woman is under the authority of any man. Let me say that again. It's not saying that every woman is under the authority of any man. 
See, I didn't grow up in the church, guys. That's why I kind of seem a little bit quirky as a pastor sometimes. I don't know all the Bible songs. Uh, it took me about 10 years into ministry before somebody introduced me to the wordless book. I'm like, what is this thing, right? I, uh, you'll, you'll hear me. That's why I'm always like, Caleb, what, right? I, I didn't grow up in the church. And so it was a shock to me when I did start attending church to see this male-dominated situation where every woman was supposed to be underneath the authority of every man. It was as if the women of the church were walking around ashamed that they were second-class citizens because they were born a female. Now, some of you might be going, Hans, what are you talking about? Guys, just look around most of the church. It's constant. I've had multiple discussions with some of the women in our leadership where I have said to them, I want you to lead this church. You're not a second-class citizen. And you know what the usual response is? Is tears. Because most of the church has never told the women in the church, you have just as much of a part leading in this church as the men do. Now, to be clear and to be transparent, we are a male-only eldership church. That is the one tiny place where I can't find any biblical backing to open it up to all women. But ladies, that does not mean you're second-class citizens. It does not mean you're second-class citizens. And if you disagree with the fact that we're male-only eldership, then praise God for that. And I'm good with that. I'm glad that we can disagree on a secondary issue and still serve together. If you go back and you look at Ephesians 5.22, we see very clearly, go back to Ephesians 5.22, we see very clearly who wives are supposed to submit to. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Guys in the church, my wife does not need to submit to any other man in this church the way she does to me as her husband, nor does she have to submit to any other brother the way she does to Patrick and I as elders. These are particular situations and particular institutions put in place by God to show his order, not the systematic oppression of one class of people. And in that, as I'll say in a second, it is only as we as elders and we as husbands lead in the ways of Jesus that Kelly even has to submit to us. When I'm being a schmuck, it is God's command to Kelly Rasmussen to not submit to me. <laughs> FYI. When Patrick and I are being schmucks as elders, it is God's command to Kelly Rasmussen and any other woman in this church to not submit to us. So do you think God would then change his mind and say in Ephesians, all women must submit to all men? But the church, I think, propagates this issue sometimes. If this were the case, why is it that a woman helps the discipleship of Apollos, a man who would become a very powerful man in the church, by teaching him the ways of God? Look at Apollos there. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, her husband, heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They explained the way of God more accurately. So, it's not saying that every woman is under the authority of every man. That's actually a very worldly thought. Third, it is not saying submit means or is the same as blindly obey. Wives are not to be ordered around by their husbands. That should be clear already, but recognize that if that is what God meant by submit, then he would be causing Abraham to sin when he told him to obey Sarai, Sarah. Genesis 21, 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
Submit does, does indeed have the connotations of following the lead of someone else. It absolutely has that. You need to follow them because that's what authority means. You're following them in the way they go. And that should not be dismissed at all. I don't want you to think I'm softballing this verse. But it also has connotations of something deeper. Guys, think of the word submit when we talk about submitting a form to the DMV. What does it mean? Here is my form. Oh, DMV, right? Well, that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is we're submitting, we're giving over to. To submit to one another means to hand them your heart, your emotions, your thoughts. It means to give yourself to them. It is the same thing as Acts 2.42, being devoted to one another. To give yourself over, to be vulnerable and devoted. Remember that in Ephesus, the hometown of the church that's being written to here in Ephesians, it was the home base of the temple of Artemis, and the entire cult based around this goddess was the background. The outcome of this cult was a social structure in which women dominated men and venerated self-sufficient women to the point of raising women higher than men. And so it's just the opposite side of the coin of the oppression that men were doing to women. The idea of a woman who wanted to give herself in vulnerability to her husband was looked down upon in this culture. But that's what all of us are called to do to one another and to Christ. And so it's not saying submit is the same as blindly obey. Fourth and lastly, it is not saying that men are better or more valuable or important than women. Guys, God has been clear throughout Scripture. Male and female are equal in value, co-equal heirs of grace. And where he, where he finds the view that men are more important, God rightly crushes it. Okay? We don't have time today because many people will ask me, well, Hans, you seem so equitable and egalitarian in terms of the way you view men and women. Why do you have male-only eldership? we got to put a pause on that, and I have to teach that to you another time because there is tons of biblical backing. I have argued and argued and argued with really good scholars about this, and I have to submit to the Word of God. And so I can share that with you another time. But what we have to realize here is that God, when he sees a situation where a man above a woman is oppression, what he does is he smashes it. A great example is in Numbers 27. This is in Numbers 27, 7 through 8. The daughters of Zelophehad a man who was, uh, he died before he got his land uh, there in Israel. He had daughters and no sons who were alive. And in that day, you only ever gave inheritance to male uh, uh, offspring. So what did God do when they had this? Well, it says right there, God says to Moses and the people, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Question, question and answer time. How well do you think this was accepted by the surrounding culture? <laughs> you guys are wrecking everything, they would have said to the Israelites. But remember, the Israelites' entire mission was to show God's heart among the heathen people. You think they did it this way? Absolutely. Okay? So God flipped the predominant view that women were second-class citizens on its head to give them equal value. So hopefully we've cleared up the idea that Ephesians 5.22 is discussing a chauvinistic hierarchy in which the man is the king of the castle. This is not the biblical view in any way, shape, or form. And men of this church, I implore you, if you hold that view, get on your knees before the table of communion today and repent. Because it is against the heart of the king you serve. So then, Hans, what does it mean? 
Well, let's look at Ephesians 5.23 or 5.23 and 24. For as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. This part is massively important. This word in the Greek, head, kephale, it, it's headship for the purposes not of power, but of order. Of order. Yesterday, when we were doing the demo day, everybody showed up, right? And we were all there. And man, it was kind of like everybody was like, what do we do? Give me that sledgehammer, right? And, and I was kind of thinking in my head, man, this would be kind of fun. Just let them all go to town. Let them see what happens. But Seth, being the genius that he is and working in construction, was like, we should probably do a safety uh, briefing, right? So everybody gathered around, and he said, you know, don't do this, do this, right? And Seth was our headship in that moment. He was the one leading us and guiding us. And he can do it really well because his head gleams in the sunlight <laughs> super well, right, Seth? Love you, buddy. It's holiness. And so this word doesn't mean authority for the purposes of power. It means authority for the purposes of order and moving people in a given direction. Because without order, guys, you have anarchy and chaos. The group that just blows my mind is the Christian anarchists. They follow a king. You can't be an anarchist when you follow a king. So let's look at what this word means. Well, there's two places in Ephesians uh, that tells us what head means. Go to Ephesians 1.19. Or 119. Ephesians 1.19. And I got to speed up so we have plenty of time for discussion at the end. 1.19. Through Christ, God was showing what the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's a place of authority. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in order under his feet, or sorry, all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Guys, within this, this is saying he is the one who leads. He's the one who is the authority. And we can't dismiss that because we don't like authority in this culture. But notice what it says. The reason that he's the head is why? Because he laid down his life. Because he submitted his life to the very people he knew would kill him. And he did it out of love and compassion. And this speaks and gives us an idea of the second place where the idea of headship is used. Ephesians 4.15. Look at Ephesians 4.15 there. It says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You don't see the head squashing the body here. You see the head leading the body and giving it nourishment. The head is the source of nourishment and flourishing. And so it makes sense then in the section we're going to read next week about husbands in 529 that it says the husband nourishes and cherishes his wife just as Christ does his own body. Now, how does Christ do this for the church? Well, remember that this section of 415 and 16 is in the area in which there is equality and unity in the body as each part in the body is, fulfill, or is filled by a different role. It's diversity of roles that lead to unity of purpose. This is what's called complementarianism. They complement each other to accomplish a given purpose. You see, God removes the barriers uh, and distinctions of economic and ethnic and gender roles. He removes that not to dismiss them and destroy them, but to remove any barrier. 
When he says in Galatians, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, that's not saying those are all going away. Otherwise, he wouldn't say in Revelation that people from many nations and tribes and tongues all worship before the Lord. The distinctions stay, the roles stay, it's that the barriers that they bring to understanding equal value, those go away. And so we must understand that this has to do with order and not power. And the problem is that our society and brokenness has so tarnished God's truth that we can't hear the word leader without thinking abuser. And it is bad, guys. As a counselor, meeting with people outside this church, as a pastor, it is rampant right now for people to throw around, well, there's abuse in the church. Yes, absolutely there is. We should not turn a blind eye to that. But just because your pastor told you something you don't like doesn't mean it's abusive. And so we have to balance it, guys. We have to balance it and understand what is truth. People that are in the leadership positions are supposed to lead in the ways of Christ through sacrificial love and laying down their lives. The second that stops, that's when we can say, I won't let you lead me anymore. And so the focus, guys, of verse 23 is not that the husband is head of the wife. The focus is that Christ is the head of the church and that husbands should reflect that. And that's even more implied through verse 24, especially in the Greek. In the ESV, it's translated now as the church submits. In the Greek, it is nevertheless as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In the Greek, it's basically saying that it makes sense that the church submits to Christ because he's the one who died for them and atoned for their sins. Okay, this is a question for all husbands. All husbands, look up at me. Are you your wife's savior? Have you died for them and atoned for them? There should have been a lot bigger no than that. I gave you even time to think. Okay? Have you atoned for the sins of your wife? No. So this is not saying that your wife should submit to you in the same way she does to Jesus. Paul's making a distinction. He's saying it's not the case with the husband that he is the Savior, but as a reflection, as a shadow of how the wife submits to Jesus, she should follow the lead of her husband. So my next point is this. We all have only one Savior, one Lord and Master, and we must not confuse him with anyone else. We have one Savior, one Lord and Master, and we must not confuse him with anyone else. Clearly, I've taught throughout the time you guys have been in this church that often we usurp the authority of Christ to do whatever we want. So we say, you know, the Spirit told me, and that's usually code for I'm going to do whatever I want as a Christian. But what we need to do is we need to submit to the Word of God and to the counsel of God through His people. Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, every single one of us will stand before one Lord and Savior. The church is not your Lord and Savior. Jesus is. And in our context today, I've seen two predominant ways that women can err in how they view husbands. First is thinking he will be your Savior, your everything. Now, this is a word for married women and unmarried women alike, but I notice it a lot for the unmarried women in the room. If only I can have a husband, then my life would be complete. Ladies, married or unmarried, a man will not complete you. He is not your mission in life. He will not make you ultimately happy. And if you marry one, you will find that out very quickly. <laughs> Only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ will save you from yourself. 
Only Christ will bring out the fullness of who you are. Your husband may fill a lot of needs, but he is not your Savior and never will be. One of the ways you can know if you're resting on Jesus for psychological support rather than as your Savior and King is get married. I find it so interesting that women who are so zealous for Jesus as their passionate relationship suddenly disappear from church the second they get engaged or married. What does that say? It says you were relying on Jesus for psychological support and he was not your Savior and King. Now, the second error that I've seen in how wives view husbands, or uh, yeah, wives view husbands, is to look at this verse and wrongly interpret it as, well, I follow Jesus as king, so I have to do the same with my husband. Whatever he says goes. Now, remember what Jesus said about having two masters? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, the context here is between Christ and the God of wealth or mammon. But this holds true in marriage as well. Let me lovingly say something to you guys. Dear church, dear church, I love you so much that I want you to understand this. Over the course of my ministry, I have seen so many zealous men and women pulled away into apathy because of a spouse that was apathetic or did not want to submit to the greater body of Christ or church leadership. I've watched women who are growing and flourishing in a church suddenly one day turn around and walk out dutifully following an apathetic husband as they go back to what they know will be a shallow Christianity of church hopping. Time and time again, I've seen it. It breaks my heart, and I want to strangle those husbands. Because those women have wrongly been told, well, that's being submitted to Jesus, follow your husband. But church, is that what this says? No. And usually what happens is it's not just the spouse that that apathetic, lazy husband takes with them. It is the children as well. Undiscipling kids who are zealous for Jesus. It is heartbreaking, and it should not be. What this says is as long as your husbands are emulating Christ in their leading, you follow them. Because guess where they're leading to you when they're passionate for Jesus? Where are they leading you when they're passionate for Jesus? To Jesus! They're not trying to make themselves your end. They're pointing to Jesus and going, he's your end. Go to him. Husbands, are we emulating Christ and making it easy for our wives to follow? And ladies, if you're wondering if your husband is leading you and if you should submit to him, ask yourself this simple question. He's asking me to be submitted to him. Who's he submitted to? That's all you got to ask. Is he submitted to Christ in a one-on-one relationship where he goes and finds the Lord while he watches football on TV? Or is he submitted to the local church and the leaders of that local church? One of the reasons we have membership is so that we as a body can practice what it is to be in submission to Christ in the way we submit to his body, the church. No one in our fellowship, male or female, is without some accountability, myself and Patrick included. If your husband balks at accountability and asks what the point is, then my question to you, wives, is why on earth would you submit to your husband when he can't even submit to anyone else? Why? It is your duty to follow Jesus and not your husband when he goes in an apathetic direction. Roles of leadership in the home and in the church should only be followed if they are leading in the way of Christ. 
And this is similar for the order within the church. For some reason, and I don't know why, guys, God has ordained for elders to be the leaders of the church. There are many days where I look at Patrick and we both kind of go, oh, <laughs> why us, right? We as elders can only lead you as we lead you in the ways of Jesus, submitting to him and to one another. Look at what Peter says to the elders in 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Here in Ephesians, Paul is describing the order that God has initiated in the home, not merely or flippantly commanding women to be subversive, or uh, excuse me, subservient, but calling them to participate in a particular role. And that role is set up by Christ to show the relationship of love and submission between Christ and his church. Guys, to be a husband and say, well, I don't like the role of the husband. It's too much responsibility. That's like a quarterback going, I don't really want to hold the ball. Somebody else hold the ball. You've been given a job and you're called to do that job. If we decide that we don't want to do the roles that God has given us, then we break down the picture that he's trying to build in the middle of marriage. So my last main point here today is this. For the ladies of the church, women, I have a message for you that I need you to grasp and hold on to. It's this. Daughters of the Most High King, your role is indispensable in declaring the gospel. Your role is indispensable in declaring the gospel. As members of the body of Christ, your role is dispensable. You don't have to be married. As a daughter of the Most High King, within the body of Christ, your role is indispensable. Has anyone ever broken their pinky toe? Well, I think of my pinky toe as like the most dispensable thing on my body, right? It's just this tiny little toe. It's whatever, right? You break it, and all of a sudden, not only are you going in circles, but you can barely walk, right? Every single part of our body is important. Unfortunately, many Christians, many women as well, right? Just Christians in general, somehow we all think we're appendixes. Well, I'm not that important in the body. You know, I could disappear one day and nobody would know. But that's not the truth. Ladies, you are first and foremost under the headship of Christ. And your husband can only lead you as he submits to that headship as well. But your first identity, responsibility, and submission is to Christ. That's the whole point of this section. Christ is from whom all other relationships flow. As we saw in the metaphor of a body with many members, using their diversity of gifts to serve in the unity of purpose, everyone has a role in the body. And similarly, everyone has a role to play in the home. In the beautiful image of husband and wife, what we'll see as we read through the rest of this section, Paul makes clear that the marriage is to picture, reflect, and display for the world what the love of Christ for his church looks like and how we as the church and individuals within it respond. We follow him not simply because he is the authority, but because he laid down his life for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet subversive to him, he laid down his life for us. And what he calls us to do is to recognize that and respond to him in following him, following his lead, receiving his forgiveness, receiving his care for us. 
That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a person who has not responded to Jesus in that way, I want to talk with you today. I'll be in the back after service about what it is to follow the leadership of Christ. But just as it is the job of every member of this body to play their role in building up the body, it's the job of both husband and wife to play their role in marriage so that Christ might be shown to the world. And guys, when we talk about roles, we are not talking about who takes out the trash and who does the dishes. We are talking about, does your relationship picture the love between Christ and the church? And my guess is, if I could see into the deep, dark recesses of the marriages in this church, we're not going to see a bunch of godly husbands with wives that don't submit. I don't think that's the the main problem in this church. Nor are we going to see a bunch of godly wives whose husbands don't love them well. My experience as pastor and counselor has told me that the secret to a good marriage is when both parties agree to take their eyes off of one another, to put their pointer fingers down that they use to accuse each other, and instead to look to Christ and follow in obedience to him individually. And then their roles start to develop, and they beautifully display the love and goodness and glory of Christ. And when this happens, marriages thrive. The gospel is displayed And men become greater servants and women become greater helpers. But both have to choose zeal for Christ. So I've got three practical applications here today that I'm going to give you. And I'm going to do these as I welcome up the panel of women who I'm going to have discuss things with me. So Seth, would you and JT come up and set up things here? And we're going to have Kelly and Wendy. um, Let's see who I've got. Uh, Wendy and Whitney and Teresa all come on up. And as they're coming up, here are the three application points I want you to grasp. First, I want to speak to the unmarried in the room, the unmarried women especially. I want you to ask the question this week, is my view of marriage biblical? Do I think of marriage in terms of self-fulfillment and what I'm going to get out of it and how I'm going to become the best me in it and how my husband is going to love me and cherish me? Or is it the biblical view that it is a picture that takes tons of work. It is an institution of sanctification to rub off all your rough edges. Is that how you view marriage? If not, then spend time this week reflecting on it and pray that the Lord might align your motivations with his. Talk to married women in the church to understand what it is that the biblical view is. Secondly, to those that are married in the church, uh, men and women, I want you to ask your spouse this week, It's going to be funny to ask if any of you did this because uh, next week because uh, this is a hard thing to do. I want to give that to you. Men and women, I want you to ask your spouse this week if you're fulfilling your part in reflecting the gospel in your marriage. Husbands, ask your wives where you can increase in love like Christ and then be ready to act on it. Don't just ask it and not do anything. Wives, ask your husbands where you can improve in following their lead towards Christ. And be ready for the answers. Third, I want you to all ask yourself this question, and I'm going to ask it of myself as well. If those outside our marriage watched us interact, not just when in public, but when in private, would they have an accurate example of the loving and respectful interaction between Christ and his church? Ask yourself that question. As I was pondering this, I started to personally come under a lot of conviction. 
Does your marriage, do those outside your marriage, see Christ and the church in your relationship? Now, if you do these things, guys, and you sit down and you go, we got room to grow, well, join the club. But if you say, man, I think we're, I think we're getting there, then be encouraged. And keep proclaiming Christ through your relationship to the world around you. Give each other a high five, right? That's a good thing. If not, though, if you recognize that there is lots of room for growth, then in your prayer time and study time this week, I would exhort you to begin journaling and to begin praying and seeking the Lord's heart in how you personally can grow in this mission. Not how you can change your spouse to grow in this mission, because that never works out well, but how you personally can grow in this mission. All right. Um, Some of the questions I threw out at you guys, we're going to start with those, and then we're going to kind of try and just dialogue a little bit. Um, The first thing is I want to ask you, uh, all four of you, do you think that your husbands are the same or your marriages look identical? No. No, not at all. Very different, yeah. So what that means is that there's great diversity in how marriages can look while still obeying the command to show the gospel, right? Husbands don't have to look exactly the same. Wives don't have to look exactly the same. All right, so first question. What does it look like for a husband and wife to fulfill, fulfill their roles as outlined by Paul so that there is an environment where both of them can flourish and their kids? That's a tough question. It's very ambiguous. What do you guys think as you were pondering that question? I think the thing that comes to my mind first is that if both um, partners are really following Jesus and desiring to um, be disciples, uh, that's just a natural outpouring of doing that first. Absolutely. I think there's going to be a respect for each other that um, kind of overpowers when you get frustrated or angry with the person. And believe me, I'm not perfect at that at all. I took notes, so I'm going to read off of mine. (laughs) Go for it. um, I had just noted... uh, a wife who is respectful to her husband in the way that she speaks and a husband who gently leads, who's not harsh and um, who treats everyone in the home with kindness. Mm, That's good. I think too that being able to point each other back when you do make mistakes of whether that's speaking harshly or things like that, being able to gently point the like, Hey, that wasn't very Christ-like and that we're trying both mutually to be closer to Christ and to emulate him and that it's a good thing that we lead each other in that way. Now that can be really hard, right? That can be really hard because when emotions are high and both people are feeling hurt by one another, how do any of you, how, can you give some examples of when, because none of you have ever sinned, right? That's, no. But, but when, you, when you have stumbled, right? When you have stumbled in your marriage and you're in that place where there's anger and there's frustration, what are ways that you've used practically to say that in a way that doesn't make the other person defensive and feel like you're kind of taking a holier-than-thou position? What do you guys, do you have any practical examples of that? I think to not do it in the moment has been the biggest, like, lesson for us in that in the moment when you're feeling that frustration and that hurt is not the time that you're going to be able to address that problem. And after things are calmed down, to have that conversation of the way that you spoke to me made me feel X, Y, and Z, whatever that is, and to bring it to your emotion that it created, but also to point to that's not at all what we're 
trying to strive towards Mm -hmm. and to point to places in the word that talk about how to treat each other. Yeah. So bringing each other back to the common mission you have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Brian has often told me my tone is really makes an impact on how he feels or thinks when I, my tone is negative or against something that he has done, it makes him feel a lot worse versus if I can say something in a, not a positive light, but am I critiquing him in a way that's still loving that works better? I don't know what that's like at all as a pastor who preaches every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the major areas I think a lot of people have to work on, myself included, of what your tone sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Any other examples? I just think I would add, I don't know if this relates, but just that forgiveness is a huge part of, of the submission concept. I think that if, um, if we can't approach one another and admit our faults and be able to forgive one another, mm-hmm. then that would be, it would be impossible. Absolutely. So. Yeah. What about it's really uh, a good thing to point each other back to the common mission. What, what happens when there's not a common mission where you have a marriage where, this is, this is another one I haven't asked you but, uh, or sent to you prior. Um, what happens when you have a marriage where they're not on the common mission? You either have one spouse who's non-believing or you have a spouse who says they're believing but is apathetic. What, what suggestions would you give to uh, people in that space, whether husbands or wives? I think first I would um, encourage them to find um, safe support people, women probably, um, who are believers and who will help them mm-hmm. and who they feel safe with like sharing what what's going on and um, who can help support and encourage and disciple them. Mm-hmm. And be strengthened in your prayer life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Pray. a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something the Lord asks us to do. You know, all of us have those, um, those member directories, right? And, and 1 John 5 talks about uh, praying for one another. The Lord might give us life, especially when we see one another faltering or failing. Um, and that's really important for us as spouses is constantly praying. I pray for Kelly often in my prayer time of, Lord, just give her life, like help her today um, to bear the brunt and burden of being a mom, being a wife, being a daughter of the Most High King, being, you know, the, the, the woman who bears a lot of the burden of this church. All right, this is a tough question for us guys to hear. Where do we as earthly husbands fall short in creating this kind of an environment? And I trust you. You guys can be honest. You're not going to be mean. Where do we as husbands, where do you think some of the biggest failure points for us as husbands are in this, in this uh, creating this environment? And Kelly, feel free to talk about all of my garbage. Right? <laughs> uh, I think a big one that stood out to me is learning to give up things that sometimes men don't want to give up things that they so desperately want to do. And women are the same way, so I'm not judging or anything. But when you have a family or a wife, you have to let go of some things for a period of time and give yourself over to your family and God so you can lead them and raise them. And that takes work and practice. And it's not always fun to let go of hobbies or activities. Not saying that you have to let all of them go, but a little bit. There's only so much time in the day. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts? That's definitely a big one. That's one I see as well. One of the things that I had noted was I feel like we live in a culture where there's a lot of men who start at a deficit. They didn't have a father as a good example. And so often I think we go, we see one extreme or the other where we see a man who's immature and 
and doesn't want to give anything up or goes the other way where he's abusive and authoritative and his family is scared. And so I think both of those options create a home where no one flourishes, including himself. And so what, is, what are some of the ways that men can kind of start to correct that, right? Kelly, you know, my, my background, my, my history, you know, I grew up in a home, uh, history of alcohol. Your family has a history of alcohol. My dad did not have a good example. He didn't really know all the things to do as a, as a husband and father. And so when we got married, um, you and I both agree that I was, I was kind of abusive in the things I said and the, the, the emotional way I treated you. And so some of the things that I've done with you and the kids, do you have examples of where I've kind of repented? If you don't, I have some. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I come, what comes to mind for me is there was a circumstance. Um, man, how old were the boys that one Sunday, or not Sunday, uh, during the week, I was really upset, and I, I threw their bikes into the yard. Yeah, I was really angry. How old were they? They were little. They were little, three or four. I had to go to my three or four-year-olds and repent to them and tell them how I had wronged them and how I had harmed them. And, and I think I had to talk to you about that first. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so how, what would you suggest for the wives in the room when they see their husbands operating in the flesh, not following the Lord? What would you, what would you suggest to them about timing and how to go to the, the husbands and say, hey, brother, <laughs> not good? I think that's hard because it really depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody, every man, every woman is different. So it really depends. I can say that for us, um, I... I'm actually, because I think one of you said kind of waiting, mm-hmm. but really, I think you're better, I'm better in the moment, yeah. but I have to be very careful about my tone, and I feel like I go into super gentle mode so that you hear me, yeah. and, and that there's no defensiveness. Absolutely. So. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts on how you'd approach your husbands in those kind of circumstances, or how you have? Because I know all your husbands, they've definitely had to repent at times. I, I think the other thing I would add is that you you just have to do it. Like, this is one of those things I think where a misinterpretation of submit is like, just be quiet and don't say anything yeah. and just hope that somehow... And, and, the reason, and the reason for that is often because of the misteachings of the sections where it says very clearly in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, women need to be quiet. And those are mistaught because the context of those is always in scenarios of the role and order within the church. And I will do that at another time, but those are not saying that women need to be quiet. Uh, ladies, in our leadership meetings, do you guys ever speak out when you disagree with me or any of the other people in the group? I know I do. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I have to add something to that question, though, yeah. that has nothing to do with marriage, yeah. really. And it, because you asked about men, mm-hmm. how they, can you repeat it? Sorry. Uh, where do we as earthly husbands fall short in creating this environment? Yeah, so I think that what I wanted to say that's sort of a tangent is that I think that um, husbands in the room can help also people who are unmarried by being being willing to show that example, not just to your wife, but in the church. Absolutely. I think um, loving other women, not being afraid of them, not being afraid to give them a hug, um, those sorts of things to, I think that's, that's helpful. Absolutely. Because then I know for me growing up, I didn't expect to do this, but growing up in an abusive home, or a couple of homes, broken home, dysfunctional, etc. Um, I was really, and am still a little bit afraid of men. I know that sounds strange, but mm-hmm. um, without being able to really unpack Probably that right strange. now, I think that um, then attending a church where men were 
segregated almost. And like I said, I was expected to submit to any man, any time, younger than me, single, whatever, it didn't matter. Um, it just it led to even like kind of a bigger divide, mm-hmm. I think, in feeling like I don't even know how to have relationship with a man that's not my husband. So um, that's that's just kind of was my thinking that might absolutely. be might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Now that's what led both of us to really search the scriptures about what what should we do as we're starting mission, and we've come um, uh, and moved a ways in that. Okay, uh, next question. What do you as earthly wives fall short in in creating this environment? What are the main ways you see yourselves and other women fall short in this kind of um, creating this environment where both can flourish in Jesus? For me, it's the tendency to take charge and get things done. To rule. To rule. (laughs) I don't do that well. (laughs) No way. Wow, you guys kind of jumped on that one. Whitney, Whitney, are you the pristine one over there that doesn't try and rule at all ever? (laughs) No, it's in my notes. It's the thing that I struggle with as well. I think I had just written down, it's hard as a woman who, you know, especially for those of us who stay home all the time. We're home and we're running the home. A lot of us running the finances, running the schedule. And we, like, just naturally fall into this place where we think we run everything. And I know for me it's hard when, even when I catch that or when Dallas points that out to me, it's hard for me to go back to that space and figure out where the balance is of yeah, I do run the schedule, but I don't run this family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. I've never thought about it that way. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. And I, I did have one other thing. I think one yeah. place that I see a lot of women struggle is with their mouth. And I said that before, but I think we don't realize how much we break our husbands down when we are disrespectful or just constantly, like, nagging and, you know, even like Wendy was saying, our tone, we have to be careful. And we, men are sensitive as well. And I think we really can break our husbands if we're not careful. And likewise, on the flip side, you all have immensely, uh, immense power in your power of affirmation. I uh, tell the story often of uh, when Kelly and I were first married, I, I made this, one of my first woodworking projects. And it was this little bookshelf for a fish tank. And it probably was not all that good. <laughs> But I remember Kelly coming out and saying, wow, you did that? Like, you did, well, that's amazing. That's really good. And I immediately was like, yeah, look at me. I have made fire, right? Uh, I was like this little five-year-old boy who was finally getting told he was a man, you know? And I think that's the heart of every man. It doesn't matter how old they are. There's power in the words of affirmation, both men and women. Husbands, you need to affirm your wives. And Kelly and I both, um, that's something that we, that's not our natural tendency because we are operators. We get stuff done, right? You know, we, let's, let's figure out what's wrong. Let's fix it. Um, and so uh, our early marriage was basically, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of figuring out what was wrong with each other and fixing it. And what we have come to realize is that's not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And so we're there to encourage and support and walk alongside each other as the Lord changes our hearts. Um, so uh, what signs... One of the big, um, let me start this way. One of the big problems often in the church is that the church actually becomes a place for abusive spouses to hide because of some wrong teaching. Um, You as women, what do you look for in a marriage? What are some signs that there is abuse going on um, and that these passages are being used to stifle a wife? What do you think there? It's a tough question, but I want to try and throw that out there for women in the audience. 
I think that one of the things that I notice about people is their comfort level around others, right? And so when I see that there's a woman who's really, like, isn't talking to anyone, sticking closely by her husband, seems afraid to, like, have conversations when approached, I always wonder, like, what's the root of that? Is it nervousness? Maybe it's someone who is uncomfortable talking to people, and that's a totally different thing. Or is it that they're being kind of ruled in their household in a way that's not healthy? And try and seek out those opportunities to try and talk with people, just to get to know people and find out their story. Because I think that there are a lot of reasons why sometimes that happens, but I always worry that abuse is one of those reasons. And so the key there is not to assume, you know, not to walk away and say, oh man, that person's in an abusive marriage, male or female, but to engage and to have a relationship. And you might find out that that person is like Kelly. What are you on the introvert scale? 98% 98% introverted? Yeah. Um, guys, that's why Kelly doesn't sit up front and do the morning announcements and, like, let Kelly be Kelly, right? Let her be introverted. She runs the IT. She runs the accounting. She runs all sorts of stuff behind the scenes, and she keeps me moving. That's, that's what she's good at. She's not going to be the person sitting up here, right? She's not going to do that. And so we... But I'm submitting to you today. <laughs> that's right. There we go. There we go. Um, but establish those relationships and figure out the heart of the, the woman or the man. Any other thoughts on that? Any signs? I, I just think that's a, that's a really hard question because it's very subtle and we could, we could give more signs here that could be any number of things. And so, but I just would really agree with what Teresa said about um, you know, starting relationship to really mm-hmm. kind of determine um, what's going on and, and supporting supporting a person where maybe that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Okay, big question that I didn't send you, so get ready. Uh, Does submit mean you never disagree with your husband? (laughs) Why are you laughing so hard, honey? (laughs) What what do you guys think? As I say that, it makes you all kind of have some emotion there. What, what, uh, What do you think as I ask that question? I, I, sorry, I I just, um, because so many people think that that is the truth. I just, I come across that all the time, but oh man, you and I disagree all the time. Yeah. I think disagreement is helpful, help healthy. I think it helps us. Wait, why, why do I think that way? Not that I'm always good at hearing Brian's opinion (laughs) all the time, but I think it's good to listen to somebody and say, wait a minute, why is my way the right way? Why is it, why is this the right way to cut onions? I mean, that's a stupid example, but it's an example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that for us, like, there have been times where you've maybe been leading in some direction and, and I've disagreed with you in a, in a, in a way that's respectful and, and kind and gentle maybe or whatever was required at the moment. But, and it's led to change mm-hmm. because maybe you didn't have all the information or, you know, I, I don't know. That's just, I, I know I'm speaking in generalizations. but Well, when we, when, when we first had the boys, the twins, oh, yeah. I decided it was a good idea that that was when I was going to start my seminary degree. And she looked at me and she said, what? They were two months old and, and she they had, were born two months early. And she had almost died twice in the midst of childbirth. And I was blind. Yeah, and she was blind, literally, um, at that time. There were all sorts of issues. And I was like, this is a good time for my seminary degree. <laughs> Possibly the dumbest thing I've ever done. And she disagreed, but then she lovingly supported me because she knew I was trying to follow the Lord. That's why I went to seminary. I got done with that term and I went back to her and apologized and said, I've sinned against you guys. And so sometimes it takes that time and it takes the prodding of the Holy Spirit 
and prayer from the spouse to get that done. All right, last questions, and then we're going to um, do communion and, and finish with some short worship. Um, what's your hope for the men of this church with regards to this passage? This whole section on, on the household code, code, really. Go ahead, Whitney. I just think, I hope that they're encouraged, you know, to step up into that leadership role, to realize the weighty responsibility that you were talking about, but also to understand that there's such freedom and joy in obedience and in building those intimate relationships with their wife and their children. Um, And I hope that they would be encouraged to disciple one another, to find men who are not doing it perfectly, but who are trying and seeking after the Lord, and that they would cling to each other and really be able to open up and figure out how to lead their family and this church well. And I would add to that, too, that um, that men, husbands, would be even further encouraged to actually seek other couples. Like, so where if this is a struggle, you know, seek another couple where men, where you could talk to other women, other wives together with their husbands and really um, have transparency. Because I think that that's the key is that healing happens when we really have transparency. I think that's when you really can experience growth. Wait, so you're saying we got to let other people in and see our garbage? Yes. All right. There we go. Any other thoughts? Mine kind of goes with this and the next question, which is about what women can do. And I would just say fall in love with the Lord. And don't forget, every day we should be having a relationship with God. Because if you don't have a relationship with God, then how are you supposed to get to know your spouse better and treat them in a way that is pleasing to God? So... Man, if you're not in the Word, get in the Word, you know? Find someone to help you. Pray. Pray while you're driving to work. So, and I would say that to women, too. And at a certain point, and this is another drum I beat often, you're not going to feel like it. You just need to do it. Um, and that's what obedience is. Sometimes we just have to do it when we don't feel like it. Any, any other thoughts for you for the men of the church? I just think that remembering along those same lines that discipling one another within your marriage is one of the like greatest gifts that we have to one another mm. to a healthy marriage and being closer to Christ. Mm. And just, yeah, that we would remember to do that with one another. Yeah. Okay, how about your hopes and uh, for the women of this church in regard to these passages we're going through? My, my hope would just be that we can disregard that knee-jerk reaction we have to the word submit and really remember what we learned today what it, what it means and what it looks like, mm-hmm. um, and that it would be uh, for the women to to just be seeking Jesus first and mm-hmm. foremost every day. Yeah.